Before we begin today's podcast, I'd like to acknowledge that we're recording on stolen and unceded Gadigal land. There's no get-out-of-jail-free cards when it comes to dealing with climate change. Now, the science is unequivocal on this. Welcome back to That's Hot, the podcast helping you get even hotter than you already are by giving you all the information you need to help the world get cooler. I'm Lizzie. And I'm Tegan. Today, we are very excited to have Dr. Simon Bradshaw on our podcast. He is the head researcher on climate science and its impacts at the Climate Council, which is so hot. So hot. (laughs) Simon has been a writer and a campaigner for climate action for over a decade, uh, was formerly the climate change advocacy lead at Oxfam Australia, and his research has taken him all across the world uh, to many international climate negotiations, and we are very, very lucky to have him on the show today. So let's get straight into it. Let's do it. That's hot. That's hot. That's hot. That's hot. Okay, to kick us off, so the first question that we have for you is a very commonly asked one, I think, definitely from my my parents' age group, I would say, but <laughs> what's the difference between climate change and cyclical weather patterns? So weather is what we experience day to day. So it might be a hot day, it might be a rainy day, uh, but the climate is the average of conditions over time. So, for example, I live in Sydney, a relatively warm climate with hot summers, cooler winters, some rainfall throughout the year, about 300 days of sunshine. That's our climate. But then, of course, every day, even every hour, is different, and that's our weather. The specific conditions we're experiencing at a given time. Of course, they are connected because as we change the climate, as we're changing those background conditions through burning coal, oil, and gas, through changing our climate, that's going to change our weather. And in essence, it's really putting our weather on steroids. We've got a warmer, wetter atmosphere now that's packing more heat, more energy, and that's going to be driving more of those weather extremes. So this one's another one I think from the probably gets asked sometimes as a climate sceptical question. How do we actually Mm. know that humans are the ones causing climate change and how is it different from those, yeah, some of those longer-term weather patterns? Well, short answer is we've got an enormous amount of data and observations now that confirm this. Uh, Because we have, over the last couple of centuries, we've been profoundly altering our whole earth system and whole processes and conditions that life depends on. And specifically, we've dug out enormous amounts of fossil carbon for the ground, burnt that, released it into the atmosphere. That's changed our climate, leading to those greater weather extremes. And we can look back through several decades of uh, observations of the composition of our atmosphere and corresponding observations of our weather to see how much we've changed things. And in fact, some very clever scientists can go back much, much further. They can drill down into the ice or they can look at tree rings. They can reconstruct how things have been in the past. And we can see that we as humans have changed things remarkably quickly. And we're no longer talking about climate change as a future hypothetical. We have changed the climate and we are feeling the consequences of that. There's still so much in our hands when it comes to limiting future harms. I guess going on from that, I think that climate change, I think calling it climate change is like a relatively newer term as like a mainstream term. And for a long time, it was called global warming. I guess using that term of global warming, why is climate change making some places colder? So the earth is getting hotter and everywhere on average is getting hotter. Those temperatures are notching up. 
But we do see some interesting anomalies, and uh, listeners might have heard of these real extreme cold spells in the US, also in parts of Siberia, and there's a specific reason why that's happened. Uh, there's a circle of winds that go around the, the Arctic. It's called the polar vortex winds, and those get weakened. They change due to climate change, and that means you can have a big mass of cold air spilt south and make some of those parts of the northern hemisphere experience very, very cold temperatures. So that doesn't mean that the Earth isn't warming, but it does mean, and it is an illustration of when we change the climate, we get some of these unusual things happening as well. So things become a lot more predict unpredictable. They become a lot more extreme. By and large, we're getting more extreme hot events and fewer cold extremes, but certainly we do get these truly wacky things like that happening now again that can be you know, profoundly disruptive for communities. What is it actually in terms of the science of climate change that makes these natural disasters, whether it be extreme heat events or cold events, what is it about climate change that makes them more frequent and severe? So in simple terms, by changing the climate through the burning of coal, oil and gas primarily, we are changing the conditions under which all weather forms. Now, we've created an atmosphere that is warmer, that's wetter, that can hold more moisture, and that has more energy in it from that extra heat to drive powerful storms. And generally speaking, that means that extreme weather events can become more intense. So, for example, cyclones can become more destructive. Extreme downpours can be even more extreme. Of course, most obviously, we're getting more record hot days. And that's because we've changed those background conditions, being the more intense and in many cases more frequent um, extreme weather disasters of different kinds. Of course, everywhere on the planet, there's that different mix of things that are going on. But we're certainly, on average, you know, increasing that risk of extreme weather events. And we're seeing that play out in very real terms in Australia. And some recent work we did showed that around 80% of Australians, believe it or not, have experienced some, experienced some form of extreme weather disaster over the last few years. Mm. I guess that it's giving me sort of high school chemistry throwbacks of, you know, your mm. entropy and you're heating things up and things just like get a bit crazier. I guess that's like, you know, if you're doing it in a science experiment in a lab, that's like a small version, but essentially what you're saying is like, we're just heating our whole world up. And so everything's, you know, all the parts of that system, whether like I understand with the sort of extreme rainfall and stuff, part of that is the atmosphere's ability to hold more moisture at a higher temperature. Have I kind of got that right? <laughs> look, you're spot on. And look, I think it's sometimes um, said that climate science is fiendishly complex and mm. in some ways it is. In other ways, as you just illustrated, it's very, very simple. And I think it doesn't take much more than what you've just said to understand the basics. Heating up the atmosphere through the burning of coal, oil and gas, digging up all that fossil carbon, thickening up that sort of blanket around the earth that retains heat. Then you've got an atmosphere, as you said, packing more energy, more moisture, and that's changing the conditions under which we see all our weather happening, leading to those greater extreme weather events and sadly all the impacts that that brings. I, I think we've covered a lot of what climate change looks like and the extreme weather events that happen because of climate change. I want to switch gears a little bit now and talk about the potential solutions that we have available to us uh, to reduce the impacts of climate change and slow down the climate crisis. The first one I want to talk about is nuclear, which is a very controversial topic. But I guess at the moment in the political landscape, nuclear is popping up a lot, especially with the uh, coalition talking about it as 
and a potential option for us uh, in Australia. I'm interested to get your thoughts and also in general, just if you think that nuclear is an effective solution to the climate crisis. By and large, and particularly in the Australian context, it's an expensive and it's a slow, it's a difficult way of dealing with things. And sometimes when people raise the nuclear option, I feel it's like, let's find a really, really tough way of dealing with this and go with that. And we don't have to. Yeah, exactly. Because we do have um, some much more affordable, some much more readily deployed solutions, especially in Australia where we have such abundant sun, such abundant wind, renewable energy potential that far exceeds our uh, domestic needs and some very mature technologies, um, not only to generate energy but then to store it and to Mm. distribute it effectively. So we really need to be doubling down on those uh, proven technologies and solar and wind backed up by storage is now the cheapest form of new energy. Going the nuclear route, for example, would be much more expensive but Mm -hmm. also take a lot, lot longer to build up a nuclear industry here. And then, of course, you've got all the longstanding, very real concerns around safety and long-term risks that goes with the nuclear industry. So the question comes up regularly, but as soon as you look at the economics, the practicalities, it's like, no, we don't need to go down that tricky path. Mm. Just got to double down on the solutions that we have here. And there's one other thing I'd say about um, nuclear power, which just like fossil fuels, it concentrates the power and the wealth in the hands of the few. It's a very centralised way of producing power. And one of the beautiful things about renewable energy is it's got a real democratizing effect, especially when we look at these community and renewable energy schemes. It sort of puts that power, those productive assets in the hands of the community itself. So it can really help reduce equality and share the wealth, share the benefits around in the way that fossil fuels and nuclear just can't. So there's many reasons why the nuclear debate is an ongoing distraction and why we should just get on with the solutions that we know work. I think you've probably hit the nail on the head as well as to why some people want to push for a nuclear path as well, right? It's that idea that we're moving from a centralised energy production landscape to something that is more decentralised and that inherently involves those who hold on to those assets and that power of potentially losing some of that. That's right. I mean, there's no doubt it appeals to a particular mm. political ideology yeah. and a particular <laughs> worldview, and we see that in the way the debate plays out, the way the debate plays out, yeah. for sure. Just to, I'm going to also just, sorry, I'm taking off. Um, actually, just to take a quick step back, I know you're a you know, climate expert, not necessarily a nuclear expert, but for those of us, and I'll be honest, I sort of have a very vague understanding of how nuclear power works. Why is nuclear power actually a like green electricity source? Because I think when we think about nuclear, the thing that comes to my mind is nuclear waste, which is obviously still a waste mm. product. Can you give us like a very quick explainer of why nuclear power, at least in theory, if it economically made sense, is actually better than burning fossil fuels from a climate perspective? Sure. So the fundamental difference between nuclear power and fossil fuels, so coal, oil and gas, is you're not digging up fossilised carbon and burning that and disrupting the carbon cycle, putting more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, driving climate change and everything that goes with that. It's a very different way of producing energy. Um, But... We do still have to bust some myths here because it's not a zero emissions technology. There is still fossil fuel inputs that go into the mining, the preparation of nuclear fuel in the, you know, the building of nuclear power plant, in the long process of decommissioning and everything else. So the life cycle emissions may or may not be lower than certain other sources, but it's certainly not zero emissions technology. Yeah. And then, as you've mentioned, you have a range of other very 
big challenges that go with nuclear energy, particularly the waste issue. Now you do have proponents of you know nuclear uh, energy sort of touting various new technologies we have that you know fundamentally different that may not leave us with those same kind of challenges. But these are very nascent technologies, and we need to be getting emissions plummeting now. And through the critical decade of the 2020s, mm. and we can do that. Yeah. Um, we don't, and we mustn't be sort of hedging our bets on you know, future very nice technologies. So, you know, again, we need to go with, with the solutions that are there that we know that work, because time at the moment is very, very precious and limited when it comes to dealing with climate change. Mm. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think people forget that setting up any nuclear infrastructure would take. A, like a decade or so and and this decade is so important and we have those technologies available to us so we we do need to be able to invest everything that we can into renewable technologies like wind and solar and, and battery storage as well absolutely and i think it's worth stressing that one more time you know we are at a bit of a precipice here we need to cut global emissions in half this decade and that wealthy developed country like australia with the kind of renewable energy potential we have and all these prosperous new clean industries we can be getting into. We need to be doing a lot better than that global average. Yeah. We should be getting our emissions really plummeting by 2030 by about 75% and then getting to net zero emissions fairly soon thereafter. So that means giving it everything we've got, but what's at stake? I mean, this is all of our futures and climate yeah. change affects us all, but you know, it impacts particularly heavily on various sections of our community. It compounds a lot of existing injustice. There are so many reasons to be going hard with everything we've got now because it means a, a brighter, more equal future for everyone. Yeah, exactly. Um, another sort of technology that's been talked about a lot uh, is carbon capture and storage. Uh, I think that that's probably something that a lot of people don't even know what that is. Um, so are you able to explain to us what carbon capture and storage is and again, is it an effective solution to the climate to the climate crisis? Sure. So I'm going to premise this by saying that thankfully in 2023, I think we're through the stage of outright climate denial. Most people get yeah, so. a problem, <laughs> need to tackle it quickly, but there is very genuine risk of um, delay, yeah. you know, false solutions. And by and large, carbon capture and storage sits in that bucket. We've got to be very careful of it because... I mean, let's just talk about what it is, first of all. This is, uh, um, you know, capturing emissions directly uh, from their source, so from a power plant and finding a way of storing those securely, either underground or by other means, so that's not getting up into the atmosphere, so not contributing to the problem. Sounds great. Technically, extremely challenging. And to do it on anything like the scale that we would need to do to deal with the emissions from power generation and other sources we just can't see any way of doing that yet. Now, there's been a decade or two of intensive investment into the technology and trials. It's not delivering. Um, so I think we have to be very sort of sceptical when we see a big push around carbon capture and storage. And usually that push is coming from the fossil fuel industry, particularly from the gas industry. Mm -hmm. And it's not too cynical to say that it's very often just being used as an excuse to continue polluting, to continue relying on the technologies of the past, it may have some very limited role in dealing with the emissions from certain industrial processes that are much harder to eliminate. But any role is going to be small and it's going to have to be on top of us doing everything possible to get ourselves off fossil fuels and onto clean energy sources as soon as possible. 
I think you raised like an interesting point there in terms of it might be required for some of these under indus- other industries that have a harder pathway to decarbonisation because I think a lot of these technologies, are, whether it's, you know, direct air capture or carbon capture and storage, like potentially have a place in a perfect world where you could like, you know, allocate exactly where they would fit. But of course, like they sit within a broader capitalist economic system where, you know, the government can't just say this can only go here. And therefore, exactly as you highlight, right, there's fossil fuel interests, there's additional interests who want to leverage that and use that to justify their own continued operation, even though, you know, yeah, so both the technology maybe does need to be developed for these niche cases, but it's hard to figure out how to do that while not letting it become a sort of Band-Aid solution. I think you're right. And I think this is why we need to watch very carefully the way that debate plays out publicly mm-hmm. and politically. I mean, taking things back to their essence, first of all, there's no get-out-of-jail-free cards when it comes to dealing with climate change. Now, the science is unequivocal on this. Yep. We have to get genuine emissions reductions. We achieve those through moving beyond fossil fuels to proving clean energy sources as fast as we can. Is there more we need to do beyond that? Of course there is. You know, we need to look through this century at then drawing massive amounts of carbon back down from the atmosphere. We need to look at how we deal with those parts of our economy, various processes that are harder, you know, to to, um, to fully decarbonize. And perhaps that's where there may be some limited role for carbon capture and storage for offsetting as well. Another <laughs> thing we've got to watch is a potential false solution. We have to talk about those things, but we need to keep our laser focus on getting emissions down because none of those extra measures can ever be a substitute for that. So I think that's our first priority. Then it's like, okay, how do we deal with those bits that are harder to decarbonize? How do we really double down on energy efficiency as well? We talk a lot about changing the way we produce energy, but being more efficient in the way we use it, of course, is important. Similarly, we have to figure out how we adapt to the impacts of climate change that sadly due to past inaction, we know are coming, that we're going to have to face over the coming decades. But again, we can't just shift our focus to adapting to climate change because if we continue down our current path, we're setting ourselves up for a future that we can't adapt to. So the first task is always going to be deal with the root cause of the problem as fast and effectively as we can. But of course, we have a range of other challenges technologies and other things we need to pursue as well. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that you brought up the offsetting question. Uh, I like furiously wrote that down. (laughs) Like I guess as another sort of Band-Aid option for us in terms of as like an option that's available to us, um, are you able to to talk about offsetting um, what that actually is and why it's not necessarily the best option for us. I think people at the moment, I feel like there's a lot of momentum in terms of measuring emissions, definitely within um, the like the business side of um, this country. I know, I know I've been talking to, to a lot of businesses about this at the moment um, and then measuring their emissions, but then they will instantly go to offsetting rather than reducing their emissions before exploring that option. So it, it's an interesting topic to talk about. It's an interesting topic and it's a really important one and I think one that we all need to, you know, to get a greater understanding of at the moment. So I'm very happy to talk about it a bit. If you don't mind, I'm going to go briefly back to some real fundamentals about the earth and about the carbon cycle. Yeah, please. That's why we've got you here. <laughs> you know, the ocean and the atmosphere and living matter and, of course, deep underground and, you know, coal deposits and other rocks and sediments. 
And you've got that active exchange all the time of carbon between plants, the atmosphere and the ocean. We call that the active or the fast carbon cycle. But then what we've done through the industrial, since the industrial revolution, is we've added masses more carbon into that active carbon cycle, digging it up out of the ground and burning it. So we've really changed the balance there. And when people talk about offsetting, it's usually thinking about, well, let's plant some more trees or let's kind of uh, draw more carbon down into that living system. Now, that's all great, but one ton of carbon put back into living matter, it's not the same as one ton of carbon being back deep underground. Mm. And I think that's the sort of fundamental difference that isn't always understood. And on top of that, you know, we can try and store carbon in newly planted forests, and then we can lose that to a bushfire or to another extreme weather event. There's an inherent instability to this as well. Yeah. So I think that's one sort of more fundamental problem here. On top of that, there are limits in terms of how much land we have when we have to take care of food production and everything else. So even ignoring that sort of fundamental challenge, we can't feasibly offset emissions at the sort of scale that I think sometimes assumed. So I think coming back to what we are saying before with respect to carbon capture and storage, um, there is a lot we need to do to be protecting biodiversity, to be uh, regenerating forests, all these things that are important for climate change, that are important for biodiversity in other regions as well. That's all good stuff. It's never going to be a substitute for stopping (laughs) emitting in the first place. Exactly. Again, there's no get-out-of-jail-free cards. We've got to drive emissions down. There'll be some role for offsets. It can be done in smart ways that's, you know, protecting important ecosystems, that's providing good jobs on country, for example. I mean, Mm. you can do great things through a well-functioning carbon economy, but we've got to get out of the mindset that we can just somehow magically offset our way out of this problem because, because we can't. I really feel like we are like a child that has their dinner on a plate and there's like a bit of veggies in the middle that they have to eat, but then they're like eating all the yummy bits on the outside. And then they're like, <laughs> but what if, like, can I just keep doing this and never have to eat the broccoli? <laughs> and I feel like we just need to eat the broccoli. It also doesn't, doesn't taste that bad, you know, just do it. There's benefits to it. That's my analogy for the day. I love it. Yeah. I am enjoying your, your little anecdotes. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so funny. I'm just thinking how I can translate them into Instagram graphics because my brain is broken and that's the only way I can conceptualize anything these days. The graphic designer like, how is really I, coming out. How can I turn it yeah, into a shareable Instagram meme, basically? <laughs> but I've got it, so that's great. So I guess in this whole discussion around renewable energy, I'm interested to know, firstly, how much renewable energy we are currently generating and using in Australia um, and how much we would actually need in the long run to be able to slow down and stop climate change. So in Australia, we currently generate a little less than a third of our electricity from renewables, and that's similar to the rate globally, actually. So it's significant and it's growing. It's not growing fast enough. And we've got a long way to go because we do need to fully decarbonise the way we produce energy, so long and the short, get to a energy system powered by 100% renewables, that's eminently feasible. It means not just new capacity, it means various upgrades to our grid, it means a lot more storage as well, but certainly that's possible to do. Alongside that, of course, we need to be using energy more efficiently as well. We don't talk about that so much, but, you know, using less is part, part of that as well. 
But then there's a lot more we can do in Australia beyond that as well because we are blessed with enormous potential for renewable energy and we can be taking care not only of our own energy needs but we can also be thinking in terms of clean energy exports in various ways and we can be you know, finding new low or zero carbon ways of making steel and aluminium, fertilisers, all these kind of other things, which is great. But, of course, that will require us to go beyond just 100% renewables in terms of our current energy requirements and, you know, build up and up from that. So we've got the potential to do that, but it's got to be done smart. And there is potential here to sort of go hard, go fast, and to be running roughshod over land rights, over, mm. um, you know, doing, repeating some of the mistakes that have been made in the past through extractive industries and yeah. entrenching disadvantage and compounding historical injustices. So we need to do it together and we need to do all these things in a smart, inclusive way where the benefits are being shared and, you know, everybody is getting a brighter future. Do you think there are good examples of whether it's like states or countries that are doing a good job of that in terms of, yeah, both managing to move quickly as fast as we need to and not sort of compromising too much on some of those other things? I'll give you two examples. Now, people often look to Europe, mm. uh, which in many cases a good decade or so ahead of us. If we look at the Scandinavian countries, if we look even at Germany, you know, with very little of the renewable energy potential compared to what we've got yep. comparatively, still they're a long way ahead in terms of transforming their energy systems. So, you know, it shows it can be done. But I want to also look close to the home. I've been blessed to spend um, a lot of time in a number of Pacific Island countries. And the Pacific is very interesting because, um, you know, really are bearing the brunt of climate change impacts despite having contributed almost nothing to the problem. Know, really being hit first and hardest by rising sea levels, more powerful storms, and so forth. But really on the leading edge of climate solutions as well, in many ways. And it's also part of the world where we see the advantages of renewable energy, not just in tackling the climate crisis, but you know, in bringing electricity to places which hadn't previously had it, uh, because you can generate the energy locally, or you know, freeing communities from expensive diesel imports. Because, again, they can just tap into the local energy sources and you know, supporting good livelihoods for remote communities. And that's taken some good planning. It's taken some good determination and it's taken real leadership. And it's one of those great examples of how tackling the climate crisis, we're also bringing all sorts of other benefits to communities. And there's so much more potential here in Australia and world, worldwide to be doing a whole lot of good through smart climate solutions. Mm, I think it's really incredible to bring up the Pacific Islands as an example because I think that like they'd definitely be be overlooked or people might not consider them as a leader in this space. So it's really awesome to hear that that those countries are doing really well and can be an example to the rest of the world. Yeah. Super interesting. Have you have you heard of them? As well, I was gonna say I think you hear a lot about the Pacific Islands sort of standing up and, you know, rightfully calling out the fact that they're mm. going to be the first to feel the impacts. Yeah. I don't think we hear as much of the story of how they're also having this ability to lead on a solutions and like intersectional mm. solutions based approach, which I think is, you know, a story that we probably need to be more conscious of telling because I think otherwise it creates this real like victim, men- like not mentality, but more on our side that we look at them being like, oh, it's up to us to save them. But we mm. actually need to be collaborating and working with them because they both have the answers and the questions kind of at the same time. Now, one thing we've seen in recent years is um, you know, some wonderful Pacific 
climate advocates really reclaim their story mm. as well. And there's yeah, this incredibly um, inspiring work by the Pacific Climate Warriors and yeah. other um, Pacific-led organisations in you know, reclaiming that story, telling mm. it as it is. That, yeah. you know, there is extraordinary strength and resilience and a determination to sort of build a future on people's own terms. And we, we see some great things come from that. I mean, I think not just the practical work around energy transitions, but um, uh, the influence that Pacific Island countries and some specific um, very inspirational leaders have had on global climate politics and on you know, helping land the Paris Climate Agreements and helping cement the goal to limit warming to 1.5 degrees in you know, bringing the focus on climate change and oceans. I mean, all of that, I think, has been very important and you know, something we have a great uh, debt of gratitude for. Mm. I think we've touched on it in a few of these questions, but I just want to ask this really specifically so that people have a visual of what we might be talking about. But what would an 100% renewable Australia even look like? So first thing, cleaner air. A few people dying unnecessarily through particulate pollution. Now, that's one of the immediate benefits we get when we stop burning fossil fuels because we're not only talking about the impact on the climate, we're talking about enormous amounts of uh, particulate pollution which is bringing about worldwide a staggering number of premature deaths. So first of all, cleaner air, all sorts of immediate health benefits we get through changing the way we produce energy. We're also, as I said, like before, we're looking not only at a clean energy system and meeting all our needs um, through renewable energy sources, but we'd be seeing all these vibrant new industries that we're starting to develop, you know, generating, the, sorry, manufacturing green steel, green aluminium, green fertilizers, and cement, all these kind of other things. And conveniently, a lot of these opportunities are in those parts of regional Australia that have previously depended very heavily on the fossil fuel industry. So, you know, a renewable energy future is a very vibrant future mm. and one in which Australia can really thrive. Now, of course, we'll have changed the way we move around a lot. We'll have a lot more EVs, but I think we'll be walking and cycling and getting on public transport a lot more because we can't just sort of model the future and what we've all done in the past. Yes, we've got to change the way we produce energy, but we need to rethink the way we move around, mm. the way we're designing our, our cities and so forth. Again, a lot of great benefits that go with this. I mean, smart action on climate change can mean better health, stronger communities, all sorts of other great things that we want to grab onto. And as I think I mentioned before as well, you know, community-owned energy is really important. You know, communities being more in control, not seeing so much of the wealth and the power sort of flowing into the, the hands of the few elites. So I like to say a healthier, in many ways a more prosperous and more equal and a very exciting future. And I want to just look at it with rose-tinted glasses, though, because that's all possible. <laughs> yep. That's what we can achieve. But the challenges are considerable, and we've got to give mm. it everything we've got mm. over this coming decade. I mean, there are technical challenges when it comes to the, you know, the things like the transmission infrastructure needed for a new, um, you know, 100% renewable energy grids and so forth. You know, we are talking about changing the ways in which we do almost anything. But I think we should hang on to that thought that what we can be heading towards and, yes, we need to be dealing with worsening climate impact and dealing ways to be resilient to those and so on. And we can do a lot in that regard. But the future can be very bright and very exciting if we listen to each other, look after each other, have a mind to those most vulnerable in the community, you know, finding solutions that bring everybody along. You know, there's a lot there for the taking. Yeah, I'm 
I'm glad that you brought up the community stuff. And I think we talk about that a lot as like community being so important to solving any issues within sustainability um, and climate change, especially. I was actually having a, a chat with someone yesterday and he lives down in the Wollongong uh, region. And mm. that area is very dependent on manufacturing and like the fossil fuel industry. And um, there's a big port down there as well. And a lot of people's livelihoods are dependent on those really carbon emitting industries. But he was saying in in the suburb that he lives in, there's a lot of people rallying together to try and get that community renewable like solar and battery systems in place so that they aren't as dependent um, on on fossil fuel uh, down there, which I think is so incredible. And I guess that uh, talks to the community point of view, but it's also really interesting in that region as well that there's going to be that talk about a just transition and and upskilling people in that area and bringing them into those new renewable industries. Mm, really exciting stuff going on down there. Mm. I know um, Saul Griffiths, who's a real pioneer of, you know, electrifying everything and this yeah. kind of bottom-up community-led transition has been very active, but, you know, the whole community is really rallying behind that vision. It, it's super exciting. I think it shows what's possible. So people, um, you know, when we sort of confronted with the uh, really – um, alarming aspects of the climate crisis. We often hear this term, you know, active hope, that once you start taking action, particularly as a community and doing these things together, you get in this great virtuous cycle mm. and it can be really empowering and you can see what's possible and you can build a lot of really strong bonds with those around you in dealing with this and you start to have a lot of hope through that action of what we can create together and certainly what's being done down there on the Illawarra coast Mm. As you've described, it is a, is a great example of people really taking the future into their own hands and, and showing what's possible. Yeah, I think that really nicely leads us into our next question, which is, in your opinion, what is the most important thing that someone can do to help fight the climate crisis? There's so much. And I think <laughs> one way to think about it is start with what, what's in your immediate sort of sphere of influence. And in several terms, you know, we can use our, our voice in how we talk to people closest to us and our family and our workplace, get everyone excited about this future we can create. You know, don't just scare the pants off them with the confronting climate realities. We need to understand that, but we need to understand the opportunities as well. So, yeah. you know, having those conversations. Of course, we're blessed to live in a democracy, albeit an imperfect one, so we have that voice. We have that mm. vote uh, when it comes to election time. That's really important, you know, choosing to vote for climate action and for a brighter future. Now, if you've got some money, and not everybody does, but if you do, that's another lever, you know, where you have your super funds, where you bank yeah. and all these other things, that can actually, again, if we have a bit of wealth, I don't personally, but, <laughs> you know, you can use that for a lot of goods by choosing where it goes because that's how everyone can be part of sort of shifting the capital and sort of yeah. creating that kind of transition. And then, of course, there's all the individual choices we make. Um, every sort of purchase choice we make, there's choices about how we move around our electricity provider and everything else. All those little actions cumulatively make a difference. So how we use our voice, how we use our money and the choices we make. Just starting with that basic framework, mm. you can see there are so many little opportunities. And I think the other way to think about it is it really is all these little things that accumulate and start to sort of turn the ship and get us on the right course. And one thing we're very fond of saying 
you know, in the climate science community is that you know, every fraction of a degree of avoided warming matters. You know, every smart choice we make, every action that we take this year, next year through the 2020s, every positive choice, that's all a little investment in the future. That's all limiting future harms. That's all collectively you know, creating um, a better future. And when you look at it through that lens, you can come to think that, yes, this is a confronting time. There's an enormous amount at stake. There's an enormous amount of danger. But it's also a super exciting time because we mm. can all, in our own way, working with whatever we've got, whatever's in our sphere of influence, we can all consciously be parts of dealing with this great defining challenge of our times, maybe the biggest challenge humanity's ever faced. We can all be part of creating a better future and rising to this moment. And when we get in that mindset, that's when that active hope kicks in mm. and that's when we can really start to feel, you know, excited about the moment we're in and you know, decide we want to do everything we can to create the best, most just, most uh, equal, brightest uh, future for everybody. Mm. It's interesting. Tegan and I have talked about this a lot. One thing, you know, last year with the federal election, there was a really clear kind of end goal for a lot of people working in climate. It was a change of government. It was, you know, an improvement in Australia's world, like climate policies. And, you know, you succeed in that, you don't succeed in that, whatever it is, you know, Tegan and I bumped into each other partying at a pub nearby, you know, it's a very clear sort of end goal. (laughs) What you're talking about there in terms of like, you know, avoiding incremental degrees of warming doesn't quite get you a good party moment in the same way that some of these other (laughs) things do, which I think makes it a little bit harder sometimes to get motivated um, to take that action when you can't see, there's no sort of clear finish line. Everything we're doing now is a bit more about that incremental gains that gets us incrementally less bad outcomes. So how do you, I guess, personally stay kind of motivated within that? And then more broadly, how do you think us as a sort of climate movement in Australia in particular, maintain that energy and that enthusiasm? Look, there will be those big um, threshold moments, like Mm. what we went through there. We will have those. There's stuff to work towards. But I think we do need to sort of get out of this idea that climate change is something that we fix. Yeah. Because there isn't an end point. I mean, uh, this is a challenge that our generation and many ahead are going to be dealing with, um, you know, in learning how to thrive in a world that is now profoundly disrupted and different and learning how to build a better world. And I think probably the thing to keep us motivated is just hanging on to that vision of, you know, we're involved in this very grand project together and everything we do is creating a better future. It's limiting those future harms. I think finding those things that personally... um, and it keep us motivated. You know, I think listening to First Nations voices is something that's so important at the moment. You know, we live on this incredible continent, you know, home to the oldest um, continuous cultures in the world. And, um, you know, so much uh, wisdom, inspiration, practical knowledge, motivation that can come from, you know, listening to um, First Nations perspectives on the current moment. That's just one of many. For other people, it might be connecting with a part of the world that just is their source that keeps them strong, whether it's going to the ocean, whether it's going to the bush, mm. um, you know, whether it's connecting with our families. I think finding that thing that for us is really, really precious and that keeps us driven to, uh, you know, be, be creating a better future. And I think come back to your original question, of course, there's going to be those big iconic <laughs> battles that we have to fight, that we have to rally around, mm. that we have to win. They're always going to be there, but, you know, this is... This is going to be the project for all of us for long into the future. Mm, and so yeah. you've got to keep motivated, tally up those victories, um, you know, get into those important fights and just uh, 
you know, hold on to that gravity of the moment we're in. Mm. It's a moment of extraordinary danger, a moment that's very exciting, and a moment where so much is in our hands in terms of the tight kind of future that we're going to be leaving for people who come next. Yeah, exactly. I think from my perspective at least, uh, you're standing on the right side of Future, of the future, right? <laughs> of like the history books. And and that's mm-hmm. the side that you want to be on, hopefully. But I, I love the idea of active hope that you were talking about. I I actually spoke to a psychologist earlier this week who has a keen focus on helping people through um, feelings of eco-anxiety. Um, mm-hmm. And she also mentioned finding those areas of, of active hope or those feelings. So I think it's a really important idea and something that I, I feel like I'll be sharing with people a lot more. Final sort of, I mean, we've added some extra questions as you realized. Um, <laughs> my one, this is a sort of, I think this is the classic, like, n- like not climate deniers, but people that don't really want to act is, and this is sort of, I guess, circling back maybe to some of our earlier conversation. Australia only makes up whatever it is, 1.3, can't quite remember, percent of global emissions. Why is it important for us as a country to be leading given we don't, admit that much or you know you can give you the cynical version well why should we have to do anything given we don't actually contribute that much to global emissions Mm, i think there's two reasons straight away first of all i think we have to flip that um perspective around and i know you know this (laughs) we are actually a very significant part of the problem when you look at the whole picture and um the fact we're real giants of the world's carbon economy the fossil fuel economy exactly um you know we, we are a enormous exporter coal and gas. So in fact, our contribution in global terms is very significant indeed. But with that goes the fact we can be such a big part of the solution Mm. uh, because, um, you know, there's this convenient reality in Australia that, you know, yes, we might have created a lot of wealth in the past from fossil fuels, but now we've got this enormous potential for, you know, for new clean industries, for, for renewable energy generation and so forth. So, Sometimes said there are fewer countries, fewer developed countries at least, that are more vulnerable to climate change and have more to lose. But there's perhaps nowhere that has more to gain by really getting stuck in and working with this natural advantage we've got and delivering the, um, uh, you know, helping deliver the solutions. So I think those are two reasons straight away. First of all, we should never understate just how significant a player is in global terms. And also we've got to get into the mindset of realising that um, we have to deal with climate change for the obvious reasons. You know, it's, it's, we can feel the consequences right now through that past inaction. You know, we're living with those consequences. It's impacting us all. It's particularly impacting uh, the people lower incomes, younger people, women, people facing any kind of existing disadvantage. It's, you know, there's a profound inequity and injustice at the heart of all of this. Uh, which we have to remember. So we've got to tackle climate change for all those reasons. But in doing so, I mean, we'd be mad not to be getting on board with this, you know, transformation the whole world's going through, this biggest change since the Industrial Revolution and, you know, recognising that Australia has an enormous amount to gain. So it kind of feels like compelling reasons that hopefully will one day shut down that argument for good. I feel like if we believe we can, you know, fight China with our three submarines, I feel like we have to believe that we can be sort of, you know, influential in the climate sphere as well. You know, I think we, you know, punch above our weight in so many areas yeah. globally. And yet when it comes yeah. to this one, there's a bit of a, oh, no, we can't do it. So, mm. And uh, we've been influential in the past. Yeah. We've done yeah. a damn fine job of putting the brakes on global action. We're pretty <laughs> we really good at influencing. Yeah, I was about to say, I mean. We can, 
We can yeah. look at immigration policy in the UK. We've been pretty influential there. We're pretty good at influencing countries to do yeah. questionable policies, basically. Yes. So it's time to be a force for good. Yeah, exactly. Rather than a force for <laughs> that we can be. That's a, a good takeaway. If we want to be. Yeah. I think that's all we've got time for today. But Simon, it was so lovely to chat with you. Thank you so much. It's been great chatting to you both. I've I really learned a lot. And, uh, <laughs> as I always do from these conversations. So thank you. Likewise. Thank you for all the, all the work that you do. Oh, thank you so much. Same to you. <laughs>